Welcome to the Global Business Builders Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders to explore the expansion of international business, including compliance, intel, and strategies that you need to know to expand your brand and leverage the global talent pool. Now, here's your host and global connector, Warren Spiewak. International M&A, it's a subject that when it comes to global business builders, finding companies that really have leveraged the global market, have expanded beyond their home country and have really gone international is an interesting thing because not just does it take expertise to go through the motions of what a real merger and acquisition takes, but when it gets into international, something as simple as if you acquire a business and let's say it's in Italy and you find out that that entity can't be transferred, what does that do? What are these different things that people need to consider? And then how do they respond that's just one quick example of what I would imagine some of these challenges are, but we're going to dive into M&A on an international front with someone who not only has done it, but she's been coaching people through the process for years. I have from the Magnolia firm, Christine McDaniel. And Christine, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Warren. Excited to be on. I can't wait to dive into what you do and all of that. But this Italy example that I'm sharing was really one that I saw. You know, in my line of work, there's people that reach out and they'll say, Hey, we're adopting 15 employees in Italy because of an MA deal. And they find out that the entity can't be transferred. They look at the tax rates and all of that. And in my world, that is something that is definitely a position where you want to be coached. You want to know that. And that's very operational, but you're doing so much more than that. And I think just to get the, like the footing of this interview before we get into international M&A, tell us about your experience and like how you got here and even where you're located today, because I know you're here in the States, but just kind of walk us through where you're at and how you got to where you are today. Got it. Okay. So where do I start? <laughs> so backing up 20 years, I've started my first business 20 years ago, small business. I've had like 10 startups since another 10 or 15 acquisitions, rollups, et cetera, myself. And I was running all my own transactions on the exits, except the first one, every single one, like even my software company, the most recent. And in the beginning, they were all, you know, brick and mortar service businesses local to San Diego. I'm in San Diego and then graduated to like the straight jump to international. So my software company started 2018, uh, Kindred, I had it three years, but on four months in, we got accepted into Techstars, an accelerator program, one of the top ones, and it was their Amsterdam program, which is exciting because I love Europe. So moving to Europe for the three months was incredible. I even stayed longer. <laughs> and we actually had an LOI. So about 10 months into the company, we had an LOI out of Berlin, Germany, and it was fun to have an LOI in euros, like on the LOI. So it was kind of cool and unique and just converting it. I think it was 8.7 at the time, 9.2 million in uh, USD. And just for everybody, welcome through what LOI means. Just because, oh, yeah, that, that's fine. <laughs> that's my job is to like make sure that no one is left behind. I love it, Warren. Great job on that because there's so many acronyms. Every week, there's a new one that I have to Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
LOI is a letter of intent. Oh, well, this is the kicker. You guys will laugh at this part. It was an MOU. Okay, so an IOI is an indication. <laughs> There's three different ones for the same thing. Letter of intent, LOI. There's an IOI, which is an indication of interest, which is like a little bit softer than an mm-hmm. LOI, but very similar. And then an MOU is what I got. <laughs> I mean, imagine getting this $9.2 million offer. And I'm like, it says MOU. Or they're like, we're going to send you an MOU. And I had no clue what that meant. And it wasn't an m and yet. So, so that's part of the reason. And it, memorandum of understanding. So again, mm-hmm. very, under, very similar. <laughs> so all these acronyms. I walked from that big deal, which is kind of a whole nother story, but which I'm glad I did. I'm very thankful I did. And then rushed back to California to raise more capital because we're running out. And yeah, so that was three years of international tech company on our platform we were building out was real estate. Co-living was the industry and that's the international industry. And we had currency conversion had to be built into the software, some language conversion tools. That was going to be my last rodeo, right? It's just like, I want to go big. What's the biggest company I could possibly and the hardest, most challenging? Oh, let's build an international tech company. (laughs) Well, and this is what I, for some people that aren't familiar with venture capital and angel investing and how some of these things work or incubators, all these kind of interesting aspects to launching a brand globally or even just launching a brand in a big way. Like think about Uber and all of these amazing companies that once they get to the venture capital realm, you just see these astronomical numbers. Techstars, from what I've ever done research and what I know about them, they're really one of the world's largest venture capital firms. I mean, this is like what an honor and pleasure it would be to be four months in business and even having a conversation with them. I got to ask just a few questions about that because when it came to Techstars even talking to you, were you pre-revenue, post-revenue? Like, Where were you at as a company at four months? We were pre. I had two amazing co-founders. So we made a lot of headway on the actual platform. And the irony was that when we got into the program, there's 10 companies from around the world, which is super cool. You're learning how different businesses or different yeah, different founders in different regions of the world operate. I felt on the pitch, there's three American companies and we're marketers and we could just exaggerate. We're storytellers. In the US, we're probably the best data in the world. And you know, the one guy from Germany, he had a struggle like pitching from the stage. It was not natural to him to sell at all or to exaggerate, you know, because we just like fluff things up in the yes. US and just a little bit too much sometimes. Well, you want to have vision, right? Like you want to have a vision. You want to sell the vision. Yeah, it could be exaggeration, but you're trying to show people where you're at and you're also showing them where they would be going if they join your team or invest in this vision that you have. Kind of like being the Disney of venture capital at the moment. But you do have to have some showmanship. You have to be able to communicate. Especially on a stage of like 500 investors, a five minute pitch. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah, that was super hard because you had to memorize all five minutes. You couldn't even look at your slide deck behind you. And I'm not good at memorizing. I'm great at improv Mm -hmm. and speaking from the heart and having Mm -hmm. some bullet points to talk off of. And so that was very hard. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. But yeah, just the experience in general was an experience like no other. I mean, mind you, I bootstrapped all my other companies. I never raised any capital. I was dating a guy that prior that talked about Sequoia, talked about all these VC firms 
in San Francisco, but I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that world. of, And I learned all of that. I was like drinking from a fire hose, of course. We went the angel route. Like our cap table had all angels. You know, I met with so many VCs out of San Francisco all over. And I just didn't want to go that route at the beginning on a pre-seed. And again, glad I didn't. But yeah, some mistakes, some smart things in the process. Well, I'm really excited to get into international M&A, but I don't want to get there too fast. I'd rather take a moment a little bit more to talk about this experience for you because you at first were experiencing this pretty much for the first time of your life and you come out with all these lessons learned, which is going to be so great to talk about. But ultimately, you noticed how this information of your experience could be leveraged by others, leveraged by those who might be Americans that are naive to what some of the international culture and traditions and way of doing businesses. And this is what I'm really excited to find out. What was something that at the end of this experience, which was a huge success, what were kind of the gaps that you noticed were the things that really took you down this idea of, hey, I've done this and now I can help others maybe avoid some minds that they don't want to hit? Or what was the strategy that you saw really you wish you knew early on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start with it's not so much kind of the strategy I was realizing over in Europe. And I was going to big conferences while I was there. I was just trying to like do as much as I could, obviously. And their work ethic, again, I was in the Netherlands. I'm in Amsterdam. It's like one-tenth of Americans. And again, that's not good or bad. You know, I think that living and life is more important to them than work. I would walk into like a co-working space to work on a Saturday and they were just in shock. They're like, well, I'd walk in and they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm just like, I'm working. And they're like, why would you work on a Saturday? And I was just like, because I'm American. <laughs> I would just answer that way. And they'd laugh. And it was summertime. I was there through June and July. And they don't work at all during the summer. But on the flip, these conferences, they'll take the stage and they'll say, Americans work so much, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, we want to be more like the tech companies out of San Francisco. We want to grow unicorns and we want to do this. And I'm kind of like... Well, it's hard to do that without working your ass off. Right. So there was just that dichotomy of mismatched expectations, which again, it's fine if you want life over business and work-life balance, but here there's not really much of that. <laughs> and again, that's by choice. These founders are passionate about what they do. They don't feel like it's work. I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that was a big eye-opener because you're in this bubble. Like I just noticed so much, again, like the marketing stuff that I think we're really good at that I didn't know until you're over in a different culture. Our work ethic, how our life revolves around it, that was unique. And then the outside opinion of America in general, you guys are individualized, you know, you're capital driven, you're capitalist. I'm in that all day long. I don't even know any different. Wow. So let's kind of get into this. I love all of this. And for starters, Had you done any international business prior to arriving to Amsterdam, or was this just the first experience you had leaving the country and actually operating as an entrepreneur, figuring out your next steps? Yeah, definitely the first time working international with any international clients with any of my ventures. Very first time. Of course, I've traveled the world. I love travel so much. 
been in like 26 different countries already. A lot of times I go back to the same ones over and over. So that list would be longer. But this was the first time I have tested just recently. I tested living in Dubai just this spring. I was there for five weeks before it got hot. And that was the plan. And then I'm going to be back in the fall for anywhere from two to six months. So I'm going to try to split my time between San Diego and Dubai I love that city. So it was fun to like see that work culture and test different co-working spaces and go to networking events. And there is an 11 hour time difference, 12 hour in the winter. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's a little tricky. Other than that, it's hustle. I freaking love the energy there. I love, I mean, San Diego's missing the hustle energy. I lived in LA for a little bit felt the energy. Again, and there's a common theme you can see in my life where it's like, Amsterdam was too slow. Europe didn't hustle enough. I love hustling and I love that energy. So Dubai, but we don't have clients necessarily because they were like, oh, are you going to get land clients in Dubai? I'm like, our clients are global. We usually never meet them. So I don't know the likelihood that somebody's going to be selling a digital business and I meet them in Dubai. I guess it's possible. That's been fun to see that work culture and that super international city. That's why I love it. 90% of the people that live in Dubai are from around the world. Not a lot of Americans, but all different other countries are flooding into there. Russia, Ukraine, a lot of the Brits are in there now from the UK. So I like that. That's awesome. Okay. Now tell me when it comes to, let's say a client that reaches out to you, whether it's a prospect from Dubai or any of the other countries where you've been doing transactions, what is your value proposition? What is it that they're in need of and maybe not know it, or maybe things that are just super obvious that you could share with us that need to be considered when doing M&A internationally? Yeah. So big ones, the first client I left and our firm's only been around. I started a year and a half ago because I was doing some deals for friends and I was doing my own deals. So a couple of friends of mine in 2021, Hey, can you come on as a consultant, do our deals? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Sure. I'll be on the backside running your deal. And those went really, really well. So then they're like, you need to do this for real. And I was like, oh, I was going to start my little boutique M&A firm, like way down the road. It was going to be like a retirement plan, but let's dive into it first big client we landed was 3.5 million based out of Bucharest, Romania. Landed them last July, actually went out. It was an excuse for me to go back to Europe and went and met them in October. Great, great co-founders, young in their thirties. And it's the currency conversion craziness because they have clients from around the world. So they're getting currency and pounds and USD and, you know, all this different, every currency you can imagine, but they're recording it as USD at least. Mm -hmm. So that's how they're collecting it, which is helpful. On the books, they had to convert it all to USD. We do expect a US-based buyer. 95% is going to be US buyer buying that company. But then here's the catch. And this is our longest listing on the market. I never, it's an incredible mobile ad tech agency. And 60% of the revenue is from the US. But it's been a hard sell. And it's like, well, we'll outsource our teams out to Romania. They're amazing programmers, very loyal workers. But yet, why wouldn't you buy buy a business out of Romania? I don't understand really what the risk is necessarily. So what you do when you talked about the entities and how Mm -hmm. does that work, it's an asset sale and you're actually not buying the LLC. Their LLC is in Bucharest, obviously. You're buying the assets out of it and you're putting it under your own business entity here in the States is how that would work. 
Yeah, and that's the thing is, as you talk about Romania, I'm in this world. My day in, day out job is very much related to helping companies hire teams internationally. Like even when they don't have an entity, there's a lot of challenges. And some of these challenges, no matter how much money you have, it doesn't solve the problem. As an example, what I'm saying is, is if it takes two years to do an entity in China, you got to wait two years. This is where I love what we're talking about is that when you do M&A, some of your ideas or the way you logistically think things should work if you're per doing an M&A deal is, oh, we'll just scoop everything up. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying it's not always the case. Sometimes there's a transfer of those assets and it's not necessarily you're buying the whole enchilada. I know every deal is different. So with that, I want to ask you, what is something that kind of surprised you as you've done deals outside of your own? Like, have you ever noticed that if it's not you that's surprised, it's a client that is going, really? That's how it works in this fill in the blank country of whatever one you think of. Anything surprising you could share with us that would be kind of an eye opener for maybe just something we wouldn't expect? From the person acquiring the company perspective? Yeah, like from one of your clients where they're going, really, Christine, this is my next step? I didn't consider that. Yeah, I mean, not really. They're pretty savvy by the time they get to us on Mm -hmm. the process and kind of what to expect as far as, again, they come to us knowing that they're going to sell to a U.S.-based company. That's not a doubt in their mind or ours because the U.S. is just swooping up different companies. Okay, so maybe this is just where I'm coming to in understanding your line of work, is that you're more so helping international companies that are non-U.S. bring something to the U.S. versus U.S.-based companies trying to expand abroad. Am I right or wrong, or is there a way you could summarize that? No, you're right. You're right. So the international companies, their client base is here. So that's why a choir would want to grab it, right? I see. Yeah, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. I mean, it only makes sense on what we're talking about. Because I keep thinking like, okay, when you're doing these deals and you're landing in a foreign country, if something foreign to what the person is aware of, there's probably a whole lot of different things that they need to be aware of. Whereas really, this is all US. I mean, really, your expertise and the way you're leveraging it is here in the US. For sure. For sure. Okay. And our listings, the majority are still US-based listings. Those uh-huh. are easier. But again, we could take clients on in different countries, but we really vet them. And especially yeah. with the Romania one taking a while now, it was like, okay, it's a lot harder to sell a company in a different country, we've realized. so. Wow. This is great. I think that a lot of times when it comes to international, whether you're like, here it is, there's a lot of companies, let's say in China that want to expand to the US or other places or wherever, there has to be a whole lot of what the local rules and regulations are and like their traditions and all of that. And language especially are all things that are part of just preparing yourself for an M&A deal. Like in other words, even translating documents has to be something you have to pay attention to. Not and no, we haven't had to do that. Mm -mm. I think in this day and age, believe it or not, I think everybody knows that to be successfully globally, they've already positioned their company where they are international. Everything's in mean English already in contracts. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Do you have like a favorite story about one of your transactions over the last year and a half you could share with us? So maybe a story of... I know you mentioned this deal that involved Romania and all of that. Is there something that you would find that is something you're really proud of over the last launching this brand? 
Yeah. The thing that's super cool right now, and right now, most of our listings are US-based. Like I said, Mm -hmm. they're selling very quickly. These CRM integrators are selling the quickest, very hot market. CRM integrator agency is the team you're bringing on. So big companies trying to put in Salesforce or HubSpot, these massive CRM systems. And those need a ton of implementation, a ton of customization, tying in with all the apps. And these companies have to outsource it. You typically do an agency, comes in and does it. I mean, we sold one 3.5 million, two weeks flat. Wow. Higher than normal multiple. We work with first-time sellers and we work with a lot of first-time buyers, which is really fun because I love holding their hand through the process. These are buyers, so we're on the sell side, but most of transactions, we end up also helping the seller because they're unrepresented. And these are buyers that have cash in the bank. They work corporate. They're sick of making, and these are their exact words. Well, first off, they got freedom during COVID. Now they had to go back to corporate and they hate it. And they're like, I'm sick of making other people rich (laughs) is what they're saying. This example is this guy keeps going into firms as the in-house implementer. So he's in the company and he's the one maintaining the CRM and the customizations because that never ends. We have Zoho and ours and it's my co-founders <laughs> constantly creating stuff inside of Zoho and customizing it. That's kind of a fun story. And what's been happening lately is these corporate guys, first time acquirers, like we just had another one come in. Yeah. I mean, it's like 90% of our buyers right now, which is cool. So yeah, you know, we love taking to market quick. We like selling quick. We like getting an offer for our seller that not only covers our commission because we're on the high end, and then we get them even more on top of that. And we're white glove. So we're boutique. We try to do as much as possible so that my seller can just keep concentrating on growing the company. And let me give that caveat right now. So it is cash flowing businesses that are selling really well right now, in our opinion. So I guess overall sentiment is that the market is not doing really well. But we're picky. These are A++ listings. We turn away about 95% of sellers that want to exit. We want to know we can take them to the finish line. And then when it comes to like resources or tools that you use to kind of navigate this process, is there anything that, you know, when it comes to working with an international buyer or seller, any kind of strategies that you've used in order to like coordinate with whether it's a time zone or just the way they want to do business, any kind of adjustments, even going back to Amsterdam, were there different things that you found yourself leveraging like a resource for you to successfully navigate that? being in a different country and doing business there. Yeah, my team is the resource literally on the team meeting this morning. We got a brand new client out of Australia. That's a 15-hour difference from her time zone, which is central. We're trying to take them to market within a week. She's like, I happen to be up at 1 a.m. I freaking emailed and texted them. She's like, because I know the time zone is like, it's delaying the onboarding, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's flipped. It's taking like an extra day. But again, my team is so incredible that she's like, I like literally at 1 a.m. was reaching out to him last night. So I think that's important. Like deals do not sleep. That's my favorite quote. I was in Europe when I was going to Romania and all this stuff over in Europe in October. I was on a big deal that I had to be on pitch calls at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., like every single night, which again, I love my freedom. I love travel. And if that's my only trade-off, it's same with Dubai, like just doing stuff in the middle of the night. And if that's the trade-off, to me, I don't care. I'll pull it off. I don't want things to get delayed and I don't want a bottleneck. And I think my team supports that too. They're cool with me 
traveling. Yeah, great. Have fun. Because they know I'm still resource, which is cool. It's the time zones, I would say, could be a hurdle with these clients you're dealing with and the buyers and everybody you're talking to. They're around the world. (laughs) But what's so obvious about you is I feel like the same way. It's like when it comes to helping somebody if like at the root of it especially when you're an entrepreneur you're doing what you love to do like you're choosing to do something because you could choose other things if you didn't want to but what happens is is when you know you're helping someone if you know that waking up at three in the morning to be on someone else's time zone to help them move the dial you're actually welcoming that you're able to be flexible to adjust your life (laughs) a little bit to make sure that the business part and the value proposition that you're providing is delivered. Oh, I love that you said that. It sounds like you have the same ethos, which is amazing. And you're exactly right. They appreciate that. You don't have to do that. I think a lot of M&A advisors and brokers do not do that. Like they're mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to golf tomorrow. Like, let's hit this on Thursday. I'm like, what? And I hear these stories. Like it's not their priority. They take two days to get back to their client. My clients have everybody's cell phone number, including mine. They could call or text whenever they want. I work holiday. Again, deals don't sleep. So I work. And again, other countries, they're not celebrating Thanksgiving in other countries. Mm -hmm. So I'm usually working Thanksgiving. I don't care or weekends, whatever it takes. Yeah. I love that about what you're mentioning about Thanksgiving. Global fluency, which is a term I throw around often, is recognizing that in different countries, weekends are different. Holidays are different. The way people expect you to interact with them is different. And sometimes it can get misconstrued where People want to stereotype a certain culture or whatever. In reality, it is. It's just the way it is. So with that, I want to ask you, you mentioned a little bit about going to Amsterdam and being an American. Dive into a little bit of maybe a stereotype that you felt like that could be true or false or whatever about being an American doing business internationally, but also maybe talk about going back to global fluency and your Thanksgiving comment ways that you maybe test the waters in a country to make sure you're kind of doing your checks and balances to be polite and to be thoughtful of these different countries you're working in? Yeah, a couple things. So a lot of countries love Americans, a lot actually, So which is nice. So you're more welcomed. And again, back to that, yeah, somebody introduced me onto the stage, which like I was like, wait a minute. When I spoke, because I was speaking a lot internationally mm-hmm. also, he's like, you know, bringing Christine McDonald onto the stage. She's from America. You know, one of his opening questions was like, coming from a country that only cares about individualism and capitalism, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts? Oh, yeah. That was a look on my face. (laughs) There was a question out the gate. And I'm like, wait, what? Because like, I didn't know that I was naive to even think that Europeans thought that of the US. And I'm like, how do I even answer this? Like, I had no clue. That's how we're perceived. And I have to answer this question. Well, and it's like a judo art that you have to have in order to I hear it on my show all the time now that I've been doing this global show where people will categorize certain countries. Like as an example, in France, they believe they invented boiling water, right? And like, I don't want to respond because of the fact that I really am very sensitive to like bias and I'm sensitive to like, I don't really believe that you could just categorically say something is about an entire country or whatever, but yet this does exist, right? So going back to you being on stage and them describing America like that, I mean, you obviously had less than two seconds to figure out how you were going to respond. How did you choose to respond? 
It was recorded. I blanked it. I don't even know what the <laughs> heck I said. I should look at the recording. And I it doesn't forget. mean it's not true. It just means that whatever that experience, like that's what I like try to keep in mind is that sometimes it's not so much that something is true or false. It might just be that that's their experience or that's how they've been brought up to think about it or whatever. And it could be very valid. It just depends. But as someone on stage and being introduced that way, you're going, okay, well, even if that's the belief or even if that's what has been their experience 10 out of 10 times, here you are, you're Christine, you're there with Kindred, and you're going to try to convey your value proposition in some kind of artful way. Fascinating to even think about that. For me here, just as someone who's interviewing you and always thinking about other countries and that, as opposed to going, you know what? The stereotype could very much smack you in the face, true or false, at a very important moment in your life. Yeah, and I probably steered the capitalism comment more towards innovation. You know, the Uh biggest tech companies in the world are coming out of California and it's like, they want to innovate. I don't think it's not like top of mind on like making a ton of money. Like there's no <laughs> yeah. way Travis of Uber, right. you know, there's no way Mark with Facebook, that's not their driver. Their driver is innovation and creating things that never exist in the marketplace, which is exciting for them. And yeah, there's a ton of money comes after that happens. So yeah. I think that that's the driver that people don't see. And it's great that so much innovation has come out of the US. Yes. This is so fascinating. And I'd like to dive into the Techstars thing a little bit more because I want to ask you, was that like a super fast paced experience? Did you feel secure through like, here it is, you're four months in business and now you're going down this huge road with an amazing partner. I mean, to me, Techstars is top of the top of the top from what I've seen. I mentioned this to you before, but I'll share it with the audience, which is Amos Schwartzfarb, who's one of the managing directors of Techstars out of Austin. I've been in rooms with him and a lot of entrepreneurs that he's mentored. Uh, you know, He wrote this really cool book called Selling More or Sell More Faster, and I interviewed him a few years back. But what was fascinating to me, and this relates to what you're saying, is these entrepreneurs, it's, yeah, the revenue side of it is part of where the relationship goes. But in reality, the very basis of what gets them thinking and gets them to the point where they're manifesting their business is providing value to humanity or technology to humanity. Like It comes from a mentality of wanting to serve and then comes all those other things. Would you agree with that? Or like when you created Kindred, you were probably very much thinking about who you're serving before venture capital and money and selling and M&A and all of that. Yeah, I mean, all my ventures have been a a need in the marketplace for myself, to be honest. Every single one of them, which is funny. It's just like, nobody else is going to do this. Great, I'm going to have to do it. So yeah, software for the co-living industry was non-existent. Property management software didn't fit that model Mm. correctly internationally. So that's kind of my driver. Yeah, so we start there. Like Mm -hmm. I threw in six figures out the gate. I had to sell my dream car, you know, that I'd just gotten a year from my last exit, bought my dream car. And then a year later, we needed the capital. We were running out, set a sell, which is fine. You know, you can always buy another one. It is, you know, cars don't bring happiness, luckily, but they are fun. I'm a big car fanatic. So that was always, I'll do everything I can. And then it's like, okay, we got to raise capital. We do that. Okay. You know, we got in text that blew my mind. So funny story, the tech stars, why Combinator is still the number one. Tech stars is number two. I mean, tech 
stores is larger, but YC is kind of the one everybody wants to get into in San Francisco. So we had applied. I had applied twice. And then we got that denial. And I was so upset. I was like, ask my right-hand Lauren, like, help me with the application. You do this little video, talk about your company. And then at the end, I was like, yeah, and, you know, we would love to join YC. Techstars reached out to us, uh, like, that same week. So I was like, oh, did they get the denial list? <laughs> Which wasn't the case. But I'm like, what are the odds they reached out? I said, Lauren, I'm still, like, upset about not getting in. Can you just send the video but clip the very end out that said, thanks, YC? <laughs> it's literally the same exact pitch video because I'm like I don't want to do it again I'm upset and like what are the odds 10 companies out of like 300 very low odds and then we got in so to that experience yes it was a lot you know again I had so much business experience and most of the people in there were engineers or they just got their MBA and this is their first startup they know nothing about business I'm like oh this is gonna be easy for me I'm 17 years in to business it's my whole life and no there was a lot of stuff you know, I was learning that I had no clue about. Arcadius had put a million dollars into the program as a sponsor. Because again, you got to think they're giving each of us like 120000 investment, 10 companies. So you had to sponsor the event is a million dollars for Arcadius, which is like a huge corporation out there in Europe. You know, and it was the start. You know, somebody made a joke because a bunch of the people in corporate come in and there's a week of pitching. It's over 60 pitches face-to-face, one-on-one with these corporate people. They're just asking us questions and getting us practice. But imagine pitching your company for 20 minutes. My co-founder was so shy. He's a tech guy. So I had to do all the talking and it's like 10, 15 minutes over and over pitching, pitching, pitching back to back 60 in one week. And, you know, somebody made a joke. It's like the startup petting zoo, right? So it's like, they're never going to invest. And that was the hopes, but they Mm -hmm. just, they're corporate and they're curious about startup world and they're asking the same questions over and over and over. And I was like, this is so hard. Yeah, I've seen that. And some of the questions are so elementary or sometimes it's just someone who wasn't paying attention in the beginning of the pitch that is asking something that really isn't fair to the entrepreneur that's pitching. Okay, so then with Techstars, you in Amsterdam, if you'd go back to that time, Anything there that you felt like, wow, this is how I benefited from having this experience? Was there someone from Techstars that really, or maybe the process of Techstars that really supported you in this kind of wildly different environment you were in? Yeah, no, no, no. They had incredible mentors, people that had built amazing companies, massive companies, would come in and speak once a week. So, so much fun listening to their journeys. And they were volunteering for Techstars. The, you know, we had a managing director. They had a great team in place. It was super organized. I loved that. The teachings were great. Again, I learned science, which I was like, oh, I'm going to be bored. And that was not the case. But it was 80 to 90 hour weeks. You know, so I got to ride as Amsterdam, set a bicycle. And it was just so idyllic, like riding along the canals and through the parks and the water fountains. And like, but it was cold. We got there end of February. So it's March, April, May. And like I said, I stayed two extra months because I'm like, I want to experience it because I literally did not. I mean, imagine you're waking up super early. You're going back home so late, seven days a week. Like, so I mm-hmm. did not see Amsterdam in those three months. Wow. And so that's why I stayed two more months. I was like, I just got to chill out a little bit and enjoy. So yeah, it was like being on a rocket ship that you couldn't even get off, even if I wanted to. Yeah. Like you're just so deep in, you don't want to let people down. 
down. You don't want to let tech stars down. You're grateful to be there. So I didn't complain. I wanted to be the first one in that office every day and the last one out because that's like my work ethic. And so I was always the first one in there even before like a managing director. Yeah. That's great. All right. Final question on the tech stars portion of your experience, which is this. Why Amsterdam? Your company, why was it all over there? Like what led to that? Were there other options and you chose that? Or is there something specific about Amsterdam that made this the platform where you invested this phase of your experience with Kindred? No, great question. Like I said, they reached out to us. So it was Techstars Amsterdam cohort reached out to us. You know, I was upset about the white thing, but I would much rather live in Europe than San Francisco. So I was like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's a big deal. I want to point that out now that I'm understanding this is that you could literally be in a state where maybe someone's not seeing your value locally there. Don't believe it yet. There's very well, it could even be with the same firm, but different geography. Someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, hey, I know maybe they're not loving you in California at the moment or no one's looking for you there. Come here. Like it's sometimes it's not even about what logo you're attached to. It's about what market is really interested in what you have to offer. And with that, I'll ask one last question regarding this and Kindred, which is what do you think was so captivating about Kindred that just moved it along so quick? And kudos to you for having this entire part of your life. How incredible is that? People dream of this. Yeah. So Techstars, just so everybody knows, is themed. And that's why they a lot of the cohorts, there's a theme attached. Ours was smart cities or ours was the future of living. And that's how we got in for co-living. Oh, okay. And then some of the other ones were as, you know, smart city businesses. They did a fintech one in New York. And so people could go on Techstars website and you guys can apply based on what category is your business in, what industry. Oh. So that's kind of the magic to that. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, the success to our company co-living was so new in 2017 and I published the first book on co-living you know it's still on Amazon and that had a co-living code show for three years where I interviewed the biggest co-living operators around the world so I was already doing that so I think that gave us visibility globally like oh future of living she's the leader in the co-living space she's speaking around the world on it already she's obviously international so I think that's what just gave us and the people acquiring us were in the co-working space so they were doing acquisitions of co-working spaces around the world. And they were like, okay, we need technology and we want to get into co-living acquisitions. That's, That's great. Why. Oh, yeah, that is it so just great. is good. Good timing across the board. Lots learned. And now I can help my clients with all this. It was the hardest three years and I did not like it during. And I was like, there's got to be a reason why I'm going through all this pain. <laughs> and we did exit, thank God, but not for how much we put in. And yeah, so it was a rough little three years there, but I learned so much that now I can help my clients with. Like I get it, right? Yeah. So when it comes to our audience, we could have a listener that's, you know, their ears perked up just talking about M&A and knowing that you've had this experience, your expertise. Can you maybe just speak to them directly on what the Magnolia firm provides and like what they could expect and then how, if they're interested in working with you or having an opportunity to connect with you guys and kind of pursue the process, what that looks like. 
Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is the best, best way to get a hold of me. So message me there. Any questions, if a deal is possibly coming on the table, because people do get approached and you might be pre-revenue in Acquahire. They might want your team. They might want your tech. So don't think because you're pre-revenue that that's not possible. Obviously, the valuations have gone down significantly on a pre-rev company. So reach out if you've got something kind of coming in or if you have questions or just need kind of free consulting on exit. We do exit planning now. We now offer that. So that's a great option for you to kind of get to where you need to be. We just reverse engineer your exit price you're looking for. So yeah, anybody listening, I think that's a great way to start. Uh, Massive advice. And I knew better and I still did it. Do not focus solely on your exit price. Do not. A friend of mine just now, recent, he's like, just started. I'm going to exit for $6 billion. Billion with a B. I'm like, you literally just started. Like, that cannot be your focus. It cannot. Your focus needs to be building an incredible company, amazing team, amazing reputation, incredible client list, revenue, revenue, profit, profit, profit. Do not get distracted by that exit number. And you're so far out. I see that mistake left and right. And again, with Kindred, I started doing it. It was a distraction. I knew better. But again, when you have the LOIs coming in at 10 months, then you're really like, oh, we can do this. Nice. And then is there anything that you could share that are difficult things that people experience maybe just before they meet with you or just things that you know occur that part of working with you is you scanning and kind of protecting them from making a few of the, the more painful parts of the process being part of their pathway? Yes. So when people come to us, it's like, and again, we have a younger clientele, they're rocking and rolling and they're like, they come to us and they're like, we wanted to sell yesterday. (laughs) That's all our listings. We're like, okay, boom, let's take you to market. We're going to fix you as you're listed, right? As the objections come in at real time, we're going to fix things. Or, I mean, we see things we got to fix like day one where we're like, oh, your books are in a mess. We got to straighten that out first. Oh my God, this company's wrapped around you. You're all over the freaking website. You're all over the social media. Like you're going to have an earn out if we don't unravel you out of this business. An owner working 10 hours a week is great. We could get them out. That's expected. Like no owner's zero hours a week. Mm -hmm. No founder. Like that's not even believable. If the owner's 10 to 15 hours a week, then that's totally cool. Like pretty Mm -hmm. much this, but they're probably handling all the sales and they're probably handling the biggest clients. So it's just like, Hey, you got to get a biz dev person in place and then just get as much off your play as you can. So we could get you out of the company like immediately within two months of the close, not this like three or an out situation. That would be the biggest. All right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is great. And I know we could go on. I think this is a very interesting topic. Definitely some things that we've talked about that, you know, don't come to mind to everybody when they think about international. I mean, just being an American, going to Amsterdam is a pretty cool experience that I think has a lot of, just a lot of intel that anybody could benefit from if you're here in the States. But then also understanding if you're in another country and you're wanting to expand to the U.S., you now can at least feel like you've got friends and comrades that you could reach out to that could help you navigate the landscape here. So thank you very much, Christine McDaniel with the Magnolia Firm. And I will put all of her contact information, uh, her LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So feel free to connect directly. Christine, thank you. Thanks for sharing all of this. You're so welcome, Warren. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, take care. And tell your whoever your guy is, Paul, who's coordinated all of this, thank you. That was very nice of him to reach out and make this all possible. So thank you, Paul. Yes, an amazing team member of ours. So I will let him know. <laughs> thank you. All righty. Take care, Christine. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. 